Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journey. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which might be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. Each broadcast, I talk with mentors who may provide that roadmap for your journey. These coaches have paved the pathway for many players and coaches. Most have authored books, like tonight's guest, and papers on tennis and life, and they continue to give back today. Who are these mentors you might hear on our Thursday broadcast? The Almighty will in each month, either Alan Fox or Coach Chuck Reese will be on. On those other Thursdays, it might be Coach Scott Williams, Dr. Bryce Young, Coach Ashley Hobson, Energy Coach Linda LeClaire, or any of the others who have blessed us being mentors during the last five years. I have been blessed to have other coaches like Ed Kras, Nick Saviano, Johnny Angel, Scott Engie, and many other college and high school coaches on too. You have also heard discussions with many others like FACA Executive Director Sheldon Cruz, Florida Tennis Founder and Editor Jim Marks, PTR and USPTA Executive Director Dan Santorum, and John Emery, and dozens of other college coaches, USTA officials, or industry leaders that have blessed us with this being on the broadcast during the past five years. And because I do believe Dr. King's statement, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, I will add my personal views on tennis and life. Naturally, you will hear my biased views that the tennis journey should be going through our high schools and colleges. Of course, the nice thing about talk blog talk radio is you can listen anytime you choose to my broadcast or to the others on the yellow ball network like chuck reese's uh wednesday tennis uh broadcast uh or you can listen anytime you choose i would like to thank the yellow ball ceo jp weber for hosting our network and if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, you are missing out on some useful information. Besides our weekly conversation, the almighty willing, you will be able to continue reading my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. And as I have previously stated, if you disagree with my views or want to add something, then please email me at Coach Denise. That's D-A-N-I-S-E dot F-H-S-T-C-A at A-T-T dot net. Who knows? You may hear your views on a future Coach Denise Exploring Tennis Blessings or read them in one of my articles in Florida Tennis Magazine. I might also remind you that if someone has taken the last issue of Florida Tennis from your pro shop, and you are not a subscriber, you can also find stories in between issues by Jim March, the other writers, and I, because we do try to keep you current on what's going on on our Facebook page. That's at capital F, capital L, Tennis, on Facebook. You can keep up with us there. So hopefully you will be... Doing that, and I would like to get started because I think I see that our uh, mentor this evening is already on the line. So let me give you my commentary uh, for uh, January 16th. You've often heard me ask the question, is after school, uh, is high school tennis an after school sport or an after school activity? And uh, I think the recent articles uh, about college tennis have uh, made this a good subject. We started this with Chuck Reese last week. And uh, let's get into my commentary. 
During past articles in Florida Magazine, I have expressed mine and other views on college tennis and the challenges it struggles with. What will the NCAA recent decision to allow athletes to earn compensation for their name, images, and likeness have on colleges, and quite frankly, maybe in the future on high schools? Will my and other views on the importance of being a team member, uh, if you remember, I talked about that in the last week's issue of uh, Coach Denise Commentary, Will that still have the same importance in a team sport? The executive director of Florida High Schools Association states that high school sports governed by the NFHS and its member state associations will be the last bastion of pure amateur competition in the nation. And it must remain that way, she says. As I attempt to explain in the past three, uh, in a past three-piece article in Florida Tennis Magazine about college tennis, uh, that might not be as simple as it sounds, but time will tell. Last Thursday, Coach Denise Exploring Tennis Blessings with mentor Coach Chuck Reese was the first of, of four broadcast conversation I'm hoping to have. And um, this Thursday, tonight, we actually have a very special guest, somebody I was privileged to go through the final stages of the high-performance coaching program uh, in in Maryland. Uh, And that is uh, the former Navy and Notre Dame coach, Bobby Palis. And he will share college tennis stories from his new book, Cross-Court Reflections, and other information about college tennis. The final Thursday in January, Ashley Hobson will share some of his 30-plus years of ATP, Davis, and Federation Cup, along with WTA experience, as well as what's going on at Inspiration Academy today with his students. The almighty will end the first Thursday in February, Our mentor will be Alan Fox, and the author and former college coach will be discussing why tennis professionals should be allowed to play college tennis. In a recent article, the NFHS pointed out that only 2.8% of high school football players go on to play college, and 1% of basketball players go on to play college. High school tennis players are not even listed in the stats because there's just not enough of them. So uh, I know people get upset with me when I ask the question, is high school tennis an after-school activity or a sport? But I think the evidence is growing that, you know, I might be older than most. I'm fighting not being old, but uh, I think it's a discussion we need to have. And uh, I like to bring on today's mentor. Bobby, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me okay? I can. I'd like to first congratulate you on your new book. Uh, I think uh, the time in and uh, being a history buff uh, person, I I think uh, history is an important tool in our learning and communications. Unfortunately, I think it's uh, forgotten in our education system. But um, cross-court reflections is not only a great history lesson uh, about uh, a lot of college tennis, but as a coach, uh, I selfishly, at my age, I see some of the coaches unfortunately dying and everything, and I've just asked today on the, one of the uh, sites that I belong to, I hope that the uh, uh, coaches, assistants, and the students go on to share some of the uh, values that were given because I think we need that, and especially today's day and age. So thanks for being on the broadcast. Uh, I just can't recommend the book enough. Uh, I, I enjoy it. 
Uh, and I thought it was going to be a little bit of a history lesson book, which it is. But I really believe it's a book that uh, has a value to young coaches, to parents, uh, being a grandfather to uh, two boys in college now. Uh, uh, I had one of them over last weekend, and they uh, reminded him that I'm still a pain in the neck, but uh, this is what goes <laughs> on in college. <laughs> Coming from somebody else as famous like you are, it means more than listening to the grandfather. So uh, thanks for being on. And maybe we can start with, you know, how the book involved. And if I'm seeing the same thing that you're trying to project. Sure. Um, I, you know, I retired after being a head coach for 44 years. And, and I retired in 2013. Um, and the timing was brought on by a number of things one i was getting older and and i started to get asked questions in recruiting about uh will you be here for all four of my son's years and and uh, then i realized other people must have thought that i was getting older as well uh, and uh then and financially that was a it was part of the puzzle i, I was able to max out social security and that helped me there were a whole lot of reasons a whole lot of things that went into the decision but uh um i haven't looked back and i think i made the right decision uh and and one of the things that came up a number of people as i traveled around and saw people that some of whom i'd coached against or had played against my teams you know we'd start talking and we'd start telling stories uh, about this match or that match, and uh, you know, I must have had twenty or thirty people say, "You really ought to write a book." And so that's how the idea uh, sort of germinated in my mind. So then I decided, um, you know, what kind of book would I want to write? Do I want to write something that's instructional, something that's history, something that's uh, funny, you know, whatever, and. Um, I, I came up with an idea um, that I wanted to take the reader through one calendar year. It, it happens to be my last year as a head coach. And, uh, you know, what happened week to week, how practices went, uh, what, what team issues came up, how do we handle the pressure of this match, uh, and right on through the season, and they're different. The, the fall is an individual season. There's not a lot of pressure on the kids or or the coaches. It, it's all about trying to qualify, build up a good enough resume that maybe you can get in the NCAA tournament at the end of the year uh, at the high level. And at, at a little lower level, it's whether you win enough in the fall that you're going to be in the lineup. And so we kind of go through that. That's a very different season. It's, it's totally individual in terms of the goals because there's no team scoring allowed in fall events. This is a rule passed by the NCAA some 10, 15, 20 years ago that I still have no understanding of how and why they did this. Uh, there are times when the uh, the uh, acronym for the for NCAA seems to stand for no clue about athletics, and this was one of those times. Uh, but with this as a start, I, I thought, well, Okay, I'd like I'd like for readers to know what a coach goes through. You know, what does it feel like to win a big match? What does it feel like to lose in the NCAA tournament? What does it feel like to land the top recruit? Um, and what does it feel like when one of your players uh, is questioning whether he wants to be on the team anymore? All of those kind of things. Um, so what I did, I went out, I went back and got all. 44 of my scorebooks because uh, all of our matches are kept annually in a scorebook that we get. And and I went through every match and I remembered most of them, almost all of them. Um, and as I looked through that particular match in that particular season, other thoughts popped into my mind. And I remembered a funny story here, an inspirational story there. And I started writing down the stories. And when, it, when I was all said and done, after going through all 44 years, I realized I had 
way too many stories. I had 300 stories that I felt were begging to be told. Now, there's no way I could handle that in one volume of a book. So I went through it again and started to pick out the best ones. And I decided to, to limit it to somewhere around 50 stories. And so what I've done is I take the reader through the the entire school year. I start at the at the 2012 NCAs. The reason I start there is because it was held in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia, and uh, Dan McGill was there, and and all that goes with that. Um, and I I wanted to be able to tell some stories about Athens, and then I would I, I moved through the summer tennis camp, summer camp, uh, recruiting. Kalamazoo, Delray Beach for the clay courts, all the different tournaments and uh, things that happened, uh, interaction with other coaches. And as I go to each each uh, different task, I, I'm, I'm looking for a way to, to segue into a story. And so uh, that's how the stories end up. There's no particular order. It's just looking for a way to segue that story into the book. So uh, it begins with a with a really inspirational story. Uh, and the date is 9/11, yeah, September 11th, 2001. We all remember what happened that day. Right. The World Trade Centers were reduced to rubble. Uh, 3,000 mm-hmm. Americans were killed in the worst terrorist attack in the history of our country. Um, I was attending a meeting of head coaches uh, held by Kevin White, who's now the athletic director at Duke, but he was then the athletic director at Notre Dame. He did a tremendous job. Um, And in the middle of our meeting, Kevin's secretary came kind of running in, whispered something in his ear, and he stood up and dismissed the meeting. He said, something is happening in New York City. I'm not sure what it is, but we need to dismiss this meeting and uh and let's we'll we'll come up with another time to cover the rest of the agenda i'll be in touch about it and we all left well as i walked from the athletic and convocation center where we were meeting to the ec tennis pavilion where my office was i was with our women's coach jay latterback and we couldn't figure out what was going on and uh we got to the tennis facility and immediately the televisions were on in every room, and boom, we saw 9-11 in all its uh, horrific detail. Um, and so here I watched as the second plane crashed into one of the towers, and imagining what what a horrible scene that was, um, a few minutes went by, and my phone rang. I picked up the phone and immediately thought I had a bad connection and almost hung hung up because on the other line, coming from the receiver, were all these crazy noises, uh, grinding noises, uh, yelling, screaming, sirens, everything, and uh, didn't know what, what, you know, what was happening. But before I hung up, I heard a faint voice that I recognized. It was the voice of Danny Rothschild. Danny was our team captain in 1998. Um, this was three years later. And he was working in the World Trade Center. And as he tried to yell to, to be heard over the noise, he said, Coach, can you hear me? It's Danny. I'm out. I'm safe. I got out. I can't talk. Reception is terrible. Uh, battery is low, uh, but the guys will be worrying about me, and they'll want to know that I'm safe. They'll call you. Please tell them I'm okay. And he hung up. I didn't have a ch- We had no discussion. I didn't have a chance to talk to him. Immediately, the phone started ringing. Danny was right. A number of his teammates were calling. Have you heard anything? Is Danny Rothschild okay? Did he get out? And... Uh, I was happy to report our conversation, and everyone was excited to learn that he was safe. But immediately I realized that I certainly had not wasted the last almost half century of my life 
in coaching because in a real life and death situation, here was a young man who wanted his teammates to know that he was safe and knew that they would be worried about him and uh, had taken the time to call me, not one of them, and I realized what it meant to be a coach. Uh, it, you're taking on responsibility you, you don't begin to understand when you when you sign up for this job. But th- that's and how... And rewards don't book. come until years later either. That's, I've often said that. The re- rewards come much later. You don't do it for the rewards at the present time. Selfishly, I love uh, the fact that you also included some of your high school and from there, my own bias, uh, I, I thought that was fantastic too. Yep, yeah. Uh, I was I was very fortunate in that I, uh, of course, I played high school tennis, but I coached high school tennis for only one year. I was 23 years old. Uh, just finishing up my master's degree, and um, I was the tennis coach at Thomas Jefferson High School in Richmond, Virginia, and I inherited an, an incredibly talented team, um, and we, we not only went undefeated and won the state championship, but um, some of my players, well, matter of fact, the first eight players on my team all played Division One tennis, and uh um, a lot of coaches were interested in recruiting some of them. Our number one, Richard McKee, was uh, an All-American at North Carolina and an NCAA finalist in doubles. Uh, and and one of the funniest stories that evolved from my high school experience was uh, Penn State University was in town to play the University of Richmond. I knew the Penn State coach, and somehow he had fa- found out that I was uh, coaching at Thomas Jefferson High School. He called the principal's office, and they got me out of my class (laughs) to answer the call. He wanted to use our courts, wanted to know if we could share the courts with him. And I kind of, he knew who was on my team, and he knew we had a lot of good players. And and I kind of joked with him, and I said, well, we'll scrimmage you, we'll play a match if you want. if that would be better than practicing, thinking that they wouldn't want to do that. And he said, that'll be great. And we set it up, and so I knew here Thomas Jefferson was going to be playing Penn State at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I told my principal about it, and he made an announcement over the loudspeaker system in the school. It was a large public school in Richmond, and he said, During the sixth period today, all students will have the option of attending their normally scheduled class or attending the Thomas Jefferson Penn State match, uh, which begins at 3 (laughs) o'clock. And so we had had about 1,500 kids that came to our match uh, and didn't know much about tennis adequate. They were yelling, screaming, and so forth. And we beat Penn State that day, 6-3. uh, the number two player on our team was very good, and he he won his match in straight sets. And as he was shaking hands with his opponent, the Penn State co- Penn State coach came over. He had asked me about him. I'd filled him in on the details. His name was Charlie Shiflett, and Charlie hadn't made a college decision yet. He went over and shook Charlie's hand as he was shaking hands with the Penn State player and offered him a scholarship to Penn State on the spot. <laughs> and Charlie accepted it and played number one the next year as a freshman for Penn State. So uh, an interesting story. Uh, uh, it was a, it, There was never a dull moment with that team. Um, but uh, those are just a couple of the stories that I, I, I try to weave in. Another one similar to the story about 9-11 is um, – that on July 1st, 1988, we were in the middle of tennis camp, and I had just given my morning uh, sort of talk to the camp. I ran out to get a cup of coffee and sat down to drink it, and uh, the mail uh, was uh, was delivered to, to our building and with it a newspaper, and I noticed that on the front page it was USS Ship Sinks, Iranian airliner, 294 
civilians killed. Uh, and I thought, holy smokes. And I started reading the article, and uh, as it turned out, um, it w- really wasn't the fault of the U.S. ship. There, there were in a war zone. There had been some incidents recently, and th- the plane took off, and it was on the same path that an attacking plane would be. And the ship radioed the plane, but the pilot didn't have his radio on the right frequency and never got the message. And the me- message was acknowledge acknowledge this call, and if we don't hear from you within two minutes or whatever it was, we're going to have to shoot you down. And so the captain immediately convened his brain trust, his top officers, and they looked at the problem. They had very little time to make a decision. Um, and there were five or six people involved in the decision, one of whom was my team captain at the Naval Academy in 1983, uh, then Lieutenant Bill Mountford. Um, they discussed it quickly, and the vote was five to one to shoot, and the one descending vote was Bill Mountford. Um, perhaps two weeks went by, and I, I had spoken to his mother and knew that uh, he was in a decent place with what had happened. Uh, she'd explained to me that he had voted not to shoot. But people wondered, and they had a big inquiry, and I got a letter from him, from him and he was explaining that he couldn't tell me a whole lot, but that uh, he had just finished a Senate hearing where he was uh, surrounded by, as he said, lawyers and microphones and senators and congressmen. Um, and uh, in a very... Uh, difficult situation he he told his story and uh he wrote me and i have i have the letter um in which he says coach this entire affair while much more serious than a tennis match was tremendously aided by my experience playing college tennis my ability to think under pressure and handle pressure was was a great uh, was of great assistance to me. Um, I think I owe a great deal to college tennis. And uh, again, another story, another uh, fact that playing tennis, high school tennis, college tennis, is a great thing. You learn a lot of things. You learn to think on your feet. You learn to make decisions. You learn to think under duress. Um, and so those are two. Two interesting stories that involve tragedy, uh, but most of the stories in my book, and I'm going to go, I'm going to run run you through about six or eight things that happened along the way, um, and then I've got some other things that you know I've sent you an outline that we need to try to get to. Um, one of my most interesting things that that ever happened to me, I had a player that I was really fond of. He was my team captain in 1975 at the Naval Academy. name was Bobby Phillips. He's now retired Admiral Robert Phillips. Um, But Bobby was a a really great kid. And uh, we were playing a match against a team that um, was not much opposition for us. Everyone was winning easily. Except as I looked down, I saw that Bobby was actually losing and I went over to look at his match a little more closely and saw him misbehaving, using some bad language, through his racket, things that were very counter to what he, they, they weren't the Bob Phillips I knew. Um, and so I went out and warned him. I just thought he was having a bad day and didn't handle it very well. I thought he was just being immature. Um, I warned him, and he looked at me and kind of glared at me, didn't say anything. And I told him that I was going to have to stop the match if he continued. Well, sure enough, uh, a a couple games later, he did a couple more things. And I went out and defaulted him. I shook the hand of the opponent and told Bobby to get into the locker room, that I'd be there in five minutes. He he had a close friend on the team who was standing there. And I told that young man, I said, You've got five minutes to get him in a state where I can talk to him. I don't know what's what's going on, but it's, this isn't the guy we both know. So I 
kind of went up and down the rest of the matches, making sure that everything was okay, and we weren't having any trouble in any of the other matches. So I left to go to the locker room to see what was going on. I walked in the locker room, and immediately I saw lockers that had been turned over. It looked like a bomb had gone off. Uh, pieces, wooden pieces of his Spalding tennis racket, uh, Pancho Gonzalez model, were all over the place, and he was very upset. And he walked toward me, didn't say a word, um, but all of a sudden he started to bawl, just absolutely cry, and threw his arms around me and sobbed. And as he slowly composed himself, I was actually worried that he was going to try to hit me because he had... uh, Growing up as a kid, he had had some experiences in Golden Gloves boxing. But uh, what had happened was Bobby's father was having an operation that day. The surgery was probably going on or just finished uh, about that time. He had asked permission to fly home and uh, be there when his father had the surgery. His mother didn't. His mother and father didn't want him to leave the academy and they wanted him to stay there and they told him they let him know what happened well as it turned out uh he, that's what was driving him he was all worried about his dad and he he just he wasn't hearing anything anybody else had to say and uh so we were able to you know he calmed down he stopped crying uh, i took him into my office we called his house uh it, his mother, someone was there and gave me a uh, gave me a number at the hospital for his mother. His dad had come through the surgery well; he was fine. He was going to be a hundred percent. And and I, t- I put him on the phone with his mother. I didn't tell her what had happened. Um, and uh, immediately, all was good. But uh, boy, for a few minutes there, I didn't know what was going on. That's that's the only time I've ever felt. And I was in physical danger, um, and uh, it, it was it was an interesting thing to go through. Uh, speaking of the Naval Academy, I'll, I'll give you another uh, funny story. Um, the year was 1970, and think back in that time, what was going on on college campuses? Horrible protests against the Vietnam War. Many colleges closed down in April because there was a situation at Kent State University where a National Guard protecting the administration building fired into a crowd of students and killed two students. Uh, It was something that if you weren't around then, you wouldn't begin to understand. But here I was coaching at Navy, and we're going to all these Ivy League schools to play, and, and that's where a lot of the hate and discontent was spewing from, um, and we were the enemy. Whenever we walked onto an elite academic campus, uh, people hated us, yelled things at us, and we were used to that. But on this particular day, we were in Providence, Rhode Island. We played Brown. We had won the match. We'd gone in to shower in their athletic facility, and our two cars, were, we had two station wagons, kind of like, almost like minivans today, um, that we were using. They had Department of the Navy written on it. We had gotten them from uh, Quonset uh, Naval Station right there in Providence. And uh, uh, we came out of the athletic facility, and all of a sudden, there was a crowd of three or 400 people surrounding our vehicles. They started screaming at us. They had signs, bullhorns. It was awful. And they were screaming, you know, uh, what do you have to say for yourselves? Fascist pig, warmonger, all of this stuff. Now, neither I nor any of our players were warmongers or fascist pigs, but we weren't going to get a chance to explain it to this this crowd. And we got into the cars and I thought, well, we're going to get out of here before this turns worse. But they surrounded the cars in all directions. 
and I was afraid. I was in the lead car. I had a commander in the Navy who was our officer representative. They traveled with us on every trip. Uh, but he was in the car behind me, and I, I would have felt better if he was in the lead because he probably had a lot more experience <laughs> than I had. Um, and one man, particularly with a bullhorn, was yelling, Warmongers, what do you have to say for yourselves? Well, he kept repeating that, and then the crowd picked up on it. And finally, our number six player was a was a guy from Alabama with a giant personality. He was funny as he could be and char- just absolutely charming. And he, he said in his Alabama accent, Coach, roll the windows down. I think I can talk to these folks and make things better. And his name was Clay Styles, and I, I remember, Clay, I'm not going to roll the window. He was talking about the tailgate down at the back where he was sitting in the back. And finally he convinced me to roll it down part of the way. And so he w- waved his hand out, and one more one more booming what do you have to say for yourselves? And then he he waved, put up a white handkerchief and waved it, and he put his face right up, got his head almost sticking out of the tailgate, and said, y'all want to know what we have to say for ourselves. Is that right? And uh, they all yelled, yes. And he he looked back toward me, turned his head backwards. I was in the I was driving, and winked, and he said, well. War is our business. And then he paused and he said, and business is booming. Hit it, coach. <laughs> Just like that. I put the car in yeah, the gear. It shook a little uh, bit. Coach, yeah, funny, yeah. when I read that story in there, I was thinking because I, about 10 years prior to that, I was stationed in Quatsa Point, Rhode Island, when I was in Goodness. the Marines. And I was, you know, we used to go, Brown was a, between Brown and the University of Rhode Island, you went either way uh, for entertainment. But it was so much, and I was wondering, I'm saying, where the hell did they get those? Did they get them from Newport? I wonder if they got them from Quonset Point. No, they were Quonset Point, yeah. And Quonset <laughs> Point's not there no more. It's, uh, I, have to I didn't even know that. And that's the only trip I've, I've ever made gone. in my life to Quonset Point. Um, and it was it was really weird. We That year... Um, we ended up, it was my first year ever in coaching as a college coach. My record at the end of the year was 10 and 7, and it would have been 8 and 9, except that Princeton and Yale, who were better than we were, we were in the league with the eight Ivies and Army. Um, and uh, <laughs> Princeton and Yale both forfeited to us, and so I was able to have a winning season <laughs> my first year. Well, and you you can appreciate what the environment was like in the country then with uh, the protests all over the place and uh, so forth. Um, I, I have a few more stories, um, and and I because I think they're funny and entertaining, and in most cases, um, one involved, and this these are all in my book. Um, uh, they're among the fifty that I picked. Uh, Flashback, uh, May 1992, we made a a great run at the NCAA championships. We defeated uh, number seven. We were 10, ranked number 10. We beat number seven, uh, Mississippi State, in the round of 16 and had to play Georgia there in Athens in front of that rabid crowd they have. Uh, And in Georgia, they don't yell. They bark. So everything is... Art, 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 like that, you know, and you hear 6,000 people doing that, it gets to you pretty quickly. Well, we were playing Georgia, and somehow we were able to upset Georgia, which was a a big achievement in those days. And uh, so here we beat number seven, number three, but next on the docket was number one, USC, uh, number one in the country, undefeated, Blah blah blah. Uh, they won the NCAA the year before, and they won it the next two years. But uh, so we had to play them. And uh, as it turned out, the next day we started the match, and our guys were—they couldn't have been more loose. It felt more like a scrimmage than a match because our uh, uh, our guys had faced that crowd, and the crowd was rooting for us 
rather than USC because it made Georgia look better. Um, and somehow some of our guys rose to heights I didn't expect, and we t- turned it into a, a great match, a very competitive match, and we started to actually m- move ahead. Well, we got up 3-1 with two matches on. This is in the old days when doubles was played last, and we didn't want to play doubles against USC because they had three doubles teams ranked in the top ten. Um, and uh, uh, all of a sudden we had a 3-1 lead, and um, and on court four, our player, Will Forsythe, somehow beat Wayne Black, who later became top 30 in the ATP and number one in ATP doubles. Uh, Wayne was 25-0 and on the year going into that match, and Will came back from 4-1 down in the third set to beat him. Well, at, at that point, that gave us our fourth point. The last match on was our number one player, Dave DeLucia, who was very good. He was ranked number one in the country. He was playing Brian McPhee, who was in the top three or four. And uh, they had played the year before, and McPhee had beaten him. But they were in, in, in a great match. They were in a third set when Will won his point to give us a 4-1 lead. David almost simultaneously broke serve and proceeded to walk towards the bench where I was sitting and looked at the scoreboard and realized Will had done. And all of a sudden, David's walk changed from uh, sort of a highly energized walk to to a quiet, he realized all the pressure had shifted on him, and he could win the match for us if he held serve. He was up 5-4 in the third. And I realized, I looked at him and realized he was feeling the pressure. When when players are under pressure and begin to tighten up and choke or whatever word you want to use for it, I have found over time that in a coaching situation, they can. there are two things you can do to make them forget about choking. One is to make them laugh. And that's pretty hard to do in, in a dramatic situation, you know, we don't always have a list of jokes up our sleeve that we can pull out. The other is to make him mad. Well, in David's case, I didn't want to make him mad, and I was trying to think of something funny that would get him on the right page. And so he sat down next to me and looked at me. I took the hotel key out of my pocket. In those days, we had big metal keys. Uh, and I laid it down on the on the bench and uh and and looked straight ahead didn't look at him he was still looking at me and finally he was pretty annoyed here he was waiting for some advice on how to close out this match and i'm ignoring him with a hotel key there so he looks at the key and he says what the heck is that and i said see the girl in the red top in the third row down there she gave it to me she said if you win this game she'll be in room 312 waiting for you <laughs> And he giggled a little bit and looked at me, and as he got up, he sort of pointed at me and said, good one. He then served out a love game, and uh, and so the story had a happy ending. Um, if you can, again, if you can make people laugh in a certain situation, I'll go back to my Naval Academy days. We had a very good number one player, Mark G, and he was playing, we were playing the University of Maryland in a night match in Annapolis, and we had a big crowd. Uh, several hundred people for us that was a big crowd then and uh, he was playing John Lucas now I don't know if anybody listening knows who John Lucas is but John was the first player taken in the NBA draft that year he was maybe one of the best athletes in the United States Um, he he not only was a great basketball player and and a top draft choice but he was also a great tennis player. He had been in, ranked in the top five, and he only played in the juniors, and he only played tennis in the summers. Um, and uh, so he was obviously a, a tough out for us. But our guy played an inspired match and won a set, and all of a sudden um, it, it got close. And at four all in the third, I could see our guy really tighten up. John was serving, but our guy made a couple of uncharacteristic errors, and I could see that the moment was getting to him, and he was pretty nervous. He he lost that game, and at 
I knelt down in front of him and try to picture this. I'm looking at him. He is looking at me, but right behind me is the crowd, the bleachers. And uh, so they can't hear what I'm saying. And so I looked at him and I, and I, and I said, uh, I said, Mark, look at me, look at me right now. And, you know, that's kind of odd for me to say. So he looked at me and I said, I want you to nod your head up and down. And he, he, he said, what are you talking about? I said, nod your head. So he nodded his head. I said, now do it again. Now, you know, I realize you got 60 seconds on a changeover. I'm blowing all the time. And he nodded his head again. I said, now make a fist with your right hand and punch your left hand like I'm going to get this thing, you know. So he punched his left hand. And right at that time, the umpire called time. I said, Mark, we're out of time. You're in a heap of trouble. This guy's an All-American, and he's got a serve that that is really good. And I don't know what to tell you, but these people behind <laughs> you, they think I gave you some really good advice. <laughs> and sh- sure enough, he started laughing and went out. He played a great game and broke serve. It doesn't have a happy ending because he ended up losing in a tiebreaker, but um, that's how you can use emotion. Uh and Coach, either laughter. Listen. Coach, listen. Yes. I want people to to uh, buy your book, and I don't want you to give all the uh, stories away because, you know, quite frankly, the way you tie them into situations is important. Uh, maybe next month or the month after, we'll have you on again. You tell some more stories. Right now, what I like you to do is, uh, if you would please share, uh, because. I think there's uh, towards the end of your career. I think it was in 219 or 218. You had experience coaching the women. I like you to talk. I mean, about that. Is there a difference uh, in how you handle that situation? Uh, I know coaching the boys and girls. I always handled the girls and gave one of my associates to the boys uh, because I just thought my own. And, and because I was so much older, too, maybe I thought I wasn't dangerous being so old. But if you would just spend a couple of minutes on that, I would appreciate it. Sure. Um, well, I never coached women. I, I coached a professional player for uh, a couple of years when I was in Boston. Um, but uh, that's a very different experience. It was it was all business pretty much. Um this happened last year, uh, 2019. Um, I was uh, I had just attended the team indoors of the men's, which was held in Chicago, and watched our team play a couple of matches. And uh, on uh, the, the the very next week, I, w- I went in on a Thursday to see our men's coach, the guy that replaced me, Ryan Satchery, and give him my thoughts on what I'd seen. For what it's worth, and uh, um, on my way in, our women's coach asked me if I could stop in to talk to her. She had something she needed to discuss with me, and she's a a good coach, a great person, and and I, I liked her, uh, but I didn't know I didn't know her team very well, and and uh, I couldn't imagine that she there was anything I could help her with. Um, but she, I went in to the office and she said, "Sit down." And I sat down, and she said, look, we just lost our assistant. He uh, had to leave suddenly, and, and uh, in the middle of the week, he was gone. He was no longer going to be coaching at Notre Dame. And uh, she said, uh, I, I, we're in a real bind. And she looked at me and said, is there any way you would consider filling in either until we can get someone else, if we can, or – for the rest of the season. And uh, I looked at her and said, when's the next match? She said, we play Clemson tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I thought it thought it over, told her I had to talk to my wife, but that uh, if they wanted me to, I would try to fill in. And, and she had my permission to get rid of me if it wasn't working out or, or if she found someone else that would be good, my feelings wouldn't be hurt. And and uh, so I, I began, and w- this leads to another neat story. Um, 
I didn't know the girls on the team very well. I knew most of their names, and that was about it. Um, and uh, so our facility has three courts on one side, uh, three on another, and then the bleachers and seating capacity is all upstairs looking down on the two uh, two sets of courts. Well, I took one side, and she took another. And as the match began to play out, it looked like it was going to be really close near the end, and it might be that the match I was on was going to decide the whole match. Well, um, Clemson had a player uh, that that was a lefty, a, a big girl with a big serve, big forehand, sliced her backhand a lot, uh, didn't ever come over it. Um, and so I got our our player to try to come in a little bit. She was very good about listening to me. She didn't know me at all. And she she was very willing to do what I said, but suddenly it got to be uh, with the whole match in the balance, the whole team match. She was up six uh, five, and we play no ad. So we got to a no ad point, and in the third set, and if she wins the point, we win the team match. If she loses the point, we go into a tiebreaker. So here it is, team match point. The lefty misses her first serve, and I immediately looked at our player, Allie Bochick, and I said, Allie, move all the way over. Now try to draw yourself a picture of this. She's on the court. Almost all lefties have that good hook-wide serve. Uh, I call it the can opener in the ad court where they can pull you way off the court. And she'd had it all day and had been using it really well. But I had had some experience with lefties and knew that they didn't like hitting the tee on the second serve. Most of them wouldn't try that. So I had Allie stand on, just behind the baseline, but all the way past the doubles alley. So she was leaving the entire service box open, and she was outside the doubles alley, forcing the opponent to go for the tee. And I said, go ahead and do that. And she looked at me like I'd asked her to grow another arm. And uh but to her credit, I said, I said, trust me, this will work. Do it. So she did. She stood over there waiting, and, and I know she was trying to figure out how am I going to get back to the middle if, on, if they hit the T-serve. Well, I saw the other girl when she noticed what happened, and I knew right away I was in good shape. She hit, instead of a big serve, she hit a serve that went about 20 miles an hour and landed in the bottom of the net right where it hit the court. <laughs> and uh, uh, she did not want to hit that tee. And, and so we win the match. Our player looks at, looks at me and points at me and yells, awesome, <laughs> and then sprinted over to give me a high five <laughs> before she went over to shake hands <laughs> with a Clemson player. So that was my first experience ever coaching a women's tennis match, and it was, it was pretty neat. But the point I'm making is that I found there was a little bit of a difference coaching men and women. The most obvious difference is, and I don't know how you felt, John, but you can't be personal. You can't make it personal with them. You you can't say you're awful <laughs> uh, because they take it way too personally. Come, uh, you say that to a male, and he's liable to say, no, you're awful. <laughs> but... Uh, um, uh, so that was something I noticed and I had been told that all along and I kind of knew that um, uh, but then what I, what I found was they are more willing to try things that you tell them to do than men um, I don't know if it's the same with boys and girls um, but at the adult level where you're in college and you're approaching or, or on age 21 I found them much more willing to to listen and do what I suggested. The second thing I found was they were much more appreciative of any kind of assistance or help I could give them. Um, they, uh, they frequently would I'd finish working with somebody and she'd say thank you. I didn't hear that on the men's side nearly as much. I know the men felt that way, but the male ego gets in the way sometimes of. Uh, of doing that. And so those were the the two biggest things I found 
other than the fact that I knew you couldn't uh, you couldn't tell them you know you couldn't challenge them as much uh, they would take it more personally whereas the men would would take the challenge as a challenge and want to prove you wrong um, now I don't want to how long does this run John I don't, I don't want to run you into we just we just killed the broadcast coach we have according oh. to my computer we have four minutes left uh, I would have like to you, got huh? into uh, the teamwork uh, because I, uh, I I I loved you know, a couple of the stories especially the ones with the Yankee player my, my daughter's favorite player and, and I used to use that quote uh, a lot because I used to hand uh, I before practice, I always put something down, and then the players had to sign it, and then we discussed it after it. And sometimes okay. I would put something down that wasn't uh, actually uh, true, and you know, so I was always challenging. Truthfully, so <laughs> they would say, "Well, coach," and one of the things with the gender difference, the girls I found more than the boys sometimes would sit there and say, "Well, you know, coach, we are here to try to win." The, uh, the title this year, but you, you're saying that's why we're here for tennis. And I said, oh, so we should X that out. That's cool, huh? And so, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, okay, let's do it then. So, you know, I would always try to write things in a way where, but I did find that the women, the girls more than the boys would say, you know, when you're saying of true, but it isn't really all true. It's not what you're normally saying, Coach. And right. So, uh, I've always enjoyed that part of them. But, Coach, we have to get you on another time because you have so many stories uh, in the book, and I love the way you tie them into situations and the meaning that you put behind that comes into those stories. It's not just reading a story or reading a quote. So with right. the last three minutes left, if you could tell us how to get cross-court reflections, uh, what to do, and then you and I will sit down after, and let's get you back on here in uh, six or eight weeks uh, when I have an opening, and let's do this again and get to some more of those stories because I think it's important, and I think uh, you know there's a lot of lessons we could take out of history, especially if they're told the way you're, you're telling them. So, you now okay. only have two minutes and thirty seconds. Go ahead, Coach. Well, you wanted to. Uh, one of the things I was going to touch on is high school tennis. I I think we have to have successful high school tennis. I'll be brief, but uh, I think that we need to change the rules in some states and allow kids to play a tournament here or there and still be on the high school team. I think in many states you can't do that, it, and so people have to make a decision. And they're being recruited at a high level, and and if they're on the high school team, they can't play the Easter Bowl or the Spring Nationals or whatever. And I think that needs to change. We need to promote it better. Uh, we need to um, promote it in school. Um, make sure that uh, I mean tennis players deserve everything anybody any other sport gets. And uh, and I think we need to encourage people to. To, to play tennis more, but I, I think high school tennis is extremely important. And, I agree, and, uh, uh, 100%. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my one year of coaching high school tennis. And, you know, John, right now I am the volunteer assistant <laughs> for the St. Joseph High School boys team in the fall and the St. Joseph High School girls team in the spring. And the spring team is, the girls team is coached by the same player that I told you the story about the airliner that was shot down, that that player. He he's, wow. uh, he visited me and I introduced him to somebody and he married her and stayed out here. <laughs> and and uh, the boys team is coached by a very good high school coach. And, and uh, um, I've enjoyed I've very much enjoyed staying in tennis that way. Well, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And how do people get your book? Um, there's a website. Um, uh, it's uh, www. 
Dementi, D-E-M-E-N-T-I, publishing. No, Dementi Milestone, M-I-L-E-S-T-O-N-E, publishing.com. www.dementimilestonepublishing.com. Um, you could actually Google it. Uh, and uh, and that Dementi, if you Google Cross Court Reflections, it comes up, uh, or my name, it, it will probably come up. But uh, that that would be the easiest way. They could contact me. I have some here, but I, it, it's probably best to go straight to the website and and do it that way. Well, Coach, thanks for being on, and I will give you a call the next couple of days because we're over. Uh, our limit now, and uh, let's see if we can set up another day for more stories. But uh, sounds great. We've, we've got Thank to you. get we've got to get people to buy the book. It's a great book. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. All right, bye. Bye bye.